Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Remember, um, could we just have the image up? Uh, the image from the World Cup that this will be referring to. Uh, anyone remember that? Joe Lyser, a famous comedian, wanted to protest some of the human rights stuff around the World Cup and decided the way he would do this would be to shred £10,000. And there was a bit of backlash against it. There was uproar. People said, what a rubbish use of the money that is. Couldn't it have been given to good causes? Couldn't it have been invested to do something about the problems that he wanted to highlight, not just shred it and make it disappear? And so he got a bit of criticism for it. Now, what we're going to see in a Bible story today uh, is quite a similar sort of situation. Now, not a protest against the, the World Cup, but somebody doing something, pouring out money and getting criticised, saying, well, maybe that wasn't the right way to go about things. So we'll see what Jesus had to say about it. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 26. Um, follow along. Uh, if you want to follow along on the screen, feel free. Uh, and it starts at verse 6 and runs through to verse 13. Now, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment. She poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were angry. And they said, why this waste? For this ointment could have been sold for a large sum and the money given to the poor. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She's performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. By pouring this ointment on my body, she's prepared me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she's done will be told in remembrance of her. That's the story as Matthew tells it. Now, uh, there, there are four Gospels, there are four different tellings of the life of Jesus. And this story is one that's picked up in some of the others as well. So Mark tells the same story, John tells the same story. Luke tells a story uh, that's a bit different but has some, some similarities to it as well. Um, but from Mark and John, we can pick up a few extra details beyond what Matthew gives that I've just read out. So, for example, John tells us that we're in the house of three siblings called Lazarus, Martha and Mary, who you might have come across in different stories about Jesus before. Now, Matthew's told us we're in the house of a man called Simon the leper. Uh, and what the commentators and scholars believe is that Simon was the dad and then Lazarus Martha and Mary were his three kids who still lived under his roof in his household. John also tells us that the person who got this perfume ointment and put it on Jesus was Mary. So Mary, one of these three siblings, was the one who did it. And he tells us, he, he gives us a bit of a timestamp on it as well. He tells us that it was six days before Jesus died that he came to stay at their house 
And Mark tells us that it was two days before he died that this meal in question happened. So quite likely he used their house as a base for that whole last week of his life. It was only a few miles outside Jerusalem, so he'd stay there, commute in and out. And two days before he died was when this happened, when Mary anointed him with perfume. Both Mark and John also tell us the name of, uh, of this substance that she used. It was something called nard, which was uh, a perfumed ointment, uh, uh, really kind of uh, used quite a lot in those days for different kinds of situations and different purposes. And whilst superficially this story does have something in common with Joe Lyser and with his shredding of cash and with the pushback, he got. I, I want to get under the bonnet of this story this morning, and I think we'll see there's something very different going on here. And really, our main focus is Mary. She's the character that a lot of this hangs around. So we're going to look a little bit at her heart. We're going to see what's happening inside Mary that will lead her to do what she did. I want to also think about her understanding. What, what truths had she seen and grasped that made her choose this expression of her love. I want to look at the response of the disciples to her and how they tried to shame her for what she'd done. And then the response of Jesus, how he lifted her up and gave her honour. And as we go, we'll think about what it might mean for us. Let's start by talking about her heart. What's happening on the inside? So the, this nard, this substance that she had, is described as expensive. And we learn from Mark when he tells it that it was worth 300 denarii. Now, that might not mean anything. I don't know how up to speed you are on your kind of ancient currency conversions. Um, a denarii was about a day's wages for a labourer. So 300 of those. I don't know, what's the going rate for a labourer these days? Let's say £100 for a day's labour. 300 denarii, you're talking 30 grand. That's quite an expensive bottle of perfume ointment, isn't it? It's not something you just kind of have for everyday use. It'd be something that you had once. Maybe it's like the family treasure or something like that. So this is beyond the 10,000 that Joe Lysett shredded. And it was kept in an alabaster jar. Now, the way these jars work is it wasn't like there was a lid that you could take off, get a bit of it and use, and then put the lid back on. The way you get to it is you had to smash the jar and you had to use it all in one go. So it was all or nothing. She couldn't give him a bit of it. It was 30 grand or not at all. Maybe a good parallel today is, imagine you had a super expensive bottle of champagne. Now, you can choose any moment you want. We're going to crack that champagne open and celebrate with it. But once you've done it, you can't be like, right, let's, let's kind of just keep the rest of it for next year. It doesn't work like that. Once you've opened it, you've opened it. And that's your use of it. So Mary chooses, chooses to do this. Maybe that lyric in that song we've just been singing, how can I praise you enough? Maybe that's what was going through her head. Uh, and what came to mind is her most expensive, most valuable possession. It's extravagant, isn't it? It's utterly extravagant. It's unimaginably extravagant. I was looking on a website called people.com recently about what are some of the most extravagant things people have done. If I was to ask you, what's the most extravagant thing you've ever done as an expression of your love, I wonder what would come to mind. Well, I asked some people. 
Some of them were quite good. Someone said, um, well, I was in this long-distance relationship. We were both in the military. So um, I left a high-paying job. I left my friends. I left my family. I moved to the other side of the country for her. So yeah, okay, that's, that's good. That's quite an extravagant thing to do. I, I get that. Someone else said, I stopped eating meat for, for the one I loved. It's a sacrifice, right? Um, someone else, I'm, I'm not sure they quite got the brief, said, well... I paid an extra 250 for stuffed crust at Domino's. <laughs> and the weirdest one was someone who said they took off their own braces with nail clippers, <laughs> which is just a horrendous thought, isn't it? Well, Mary's act of extravagance was pouring out this, this nard, this perfumed ointment on Jesus. What do you think was going on in her heart to do something like that? What word would you use for it? Devotion might be a good word. That's what it is. It's an act of devotion. Maybe maybe worship is an appropriate word. Um, But I can't stop thinking that the right word for it is love. She loved Jesus, and she wanted to express that love for him. She's giving up something that matters. In fact, Richard Green says that many believe this perfume had been given to Mary by her parents for her wedding night to anoint the marital bed for her husband. So what a precious gift she's given here to her Lord. And I love the symbol of smashing the jar, because it's a visual picture, isn't it, of smashing the things that might be valuable to us, but that that don't have the same value as Christ. Smashing whatever in our life is the lesser love as part of our worship for the greater one. I wonder if you remember the story of King Edward VIII. Um, So he became king in 1936, but he'd fallen in love with an American woman who had been divorced in the past. And in 1930s England, that just wasn't the done thing. It wouldn't be socially acceptable. It wouldn't be politically acceptable, particularly for the king to be married to this woman. And so it came down to a choice that he had to make. Well, if you really want to marry this woman, you've got to step away from the monarchy. You've got to abdicate the throne. And he did it. He gave up something that we'd all look at and say, wow, that's so incredibly valuable. You're the king. You've given up your whole reign for the one he loves. He gave up something that he valued less for the one he valued more. That's how it is, isn't it? With devotion, with worship, with love, For Jesus, that's what Mary's doing. Yeah, it's worth 30 grand, but to her, it's worth less than the saviour who stood right before her. You might remember that line in the hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. What might it be for us? What might it look like for you and for me to express our devotion to Jesus? Well, there's no instruction manual. Love doesn't work like that, right? So if I was to say, right, step by step, here's how you show love for someone, and then they realise you were working down a list, they'd be like, this really isn't how you show love. You show love by stuff welling up in your heart and choosing to lay stuff down. But I don't know, maybe, maybe the way you are going to express your love for Jesus this year is by starting to fast. Maybe starting to forsake eating some days to draw closer to him or maybe the way you'll express your love for him is pushing at the door of going to an unreached nation and proclaiming his goodness to people who've never heard about him before 
Maybe it'll be extravagance when Give Big comes around. Maybe it'll be ending a relationship in your life that you know isn't honoring him. I don't know what it might be for you. But something in your heart that says, I've got to praise him. I've got to show my love somehow. This is what I'm going to do. That will be stepping into the shoes of Mary. But my concern this morning is really less about the specifics of what you're going to do to express your love. I just want to ask you about that love itself. I want to ask you, are you drawn to him? Do you desire him above all things? Are you pouring yourself out gladly before him? Priscilla Shiraz said, God's real desire, in addition to displaying his glory, is to claim your heart and the hearts of those you love. Well, he had Mary's heart. We see that in the story. Does he have your heart this morning? That's the question, isn't it? Now, in one way, I could end the preach there. In one way, we could just leave it at that. Mary's done something extravagant. It came from a heart of devotion, love, and worship. Amen. That's it. I think if we do that, I think if this is the stopping point, we're selling her a little bit short. Because Mary chose something very specific that she was going to do to express her love. And her actions revealed something. They showed that she'd grasped some truth that even some of the other disciples hadn't quite got. Remember Mary, she was the one who, while her sister had been uh, going around kind of stressing about all the hospitality that needed doing, Mary had been the one just sitting at the feet of Jesus listening, just wanting to absorb his teaching. And it's like it's sunk in. It's like she's got it. She's grasped what he was saying. And that's what led her to choose to show her love in this way. Let me give you an example. The fact that she chose to anoint him, that's a really specific thing to do. And it's not the first time in the Bible it's happened. Now, anointing literally means to pour oil on somebody. So, I've got some oil here. Um, Don't worry, I'm not going to get a volunteer to pour it on. That would be awkward. But it's taking oil and it's pouring it onto the head of somebody. Now, that's not something that Mary's invented herself. This is a thing that's happened before in the Bible. It would happen in the Old Testament when somebody was starting a new ministry role. So if somebody was about to become the king, what they'd do is they'd get them and they'd anoint them. That would be part of the ceremony. Say, right, this person is now going to do this role. Or if someone was to become a priest, they'd be anointed. If someone was to become a prophet, they'd be anointed. So, for example, when David was about to become king, Samuel's lined up all the brothers and uh, said, well, I don't think God's saying it's any of these. Isn't there another one? And so David gets brought out of the field. And then this is 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. So the anointing was a symbol of recognition of who someone was. Also, the the other people who were anointed in the Old Testament were lepers. So if someone had leprosy and then were healed from leprosy and were going to be brought back into society, they'd be anointed as well. But this became a symbol associated with healing, with cleansing, and with empowering for a ministry role. 
And what happened over time in the Old Testament is whenever people were starting to speak of God's promises to send someone, send someone into the world to be God's chosen one, they talk in terms of anointing. So, for example, Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed one. So you've got this figure, the anointed one, who is spoken of in that prophecy. Or in Isaiah 61, the servant of the Lord says, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners. So you've got this idea of the anointed one. And in the Hebrew language, the word for anointed one, you'll have definitely heard of it, it's Messiah. So when you hear the word Messiah, literally you, you hear in the one who had oil poured on him. That's what it means. And maybe you've heard the Greek version of that word as well, because that's the word Christ. So when you say Jesus Christ, what you're actually saying is Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the one with oil smeared on him. That's the image you're saying when you say Messiah or Christ. And then Jesus picked this up. When he started his ministry, he went into the synagogue, he read that Isaiah passage about how the spirit of the Lord's on him because the Lord has anointed him. And he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing. I am the one. I am this figure that all the promises have been made about. I am the anointed one. And that was true. It was true in a spiritual sense because God had anointed him with the Holy Spirit. But at that point, it wasn't true in a physical sense, was it? No one had poured oil on him at that moment in time. The anointed one had not yet been anointed. It also became a a symbol of healing. That, That thing with the leprosy is picked up. And Jesus, when he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel and to heal the sick, it says in Mark 6, they went out, proclaimed that all should repent, They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. It became a part of how they prayed for the sick. Now, you might be thinking, well, why this big detour into anointing? Why have we taken that little tour through the Old Testament? Just think about what might have been going on in Mary's head in her choice to respond to Jesus in this way, in her choice to do this specific thing. There's a recognition. She's grasped something. She's understood who Jesus is. There's a famous moment with Simon Peter when Jesus says to him, who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. Literally saying, yeah, I get it. You are the anointed one. You're the one who all the promises have been made about. And that's true. It's good. It was given to Simon Peter by God. But in Simon Peter's expression of it, it was words. Well, Mary here, she's had the same revelation. She's understood the same truth given to her by God. And yet the way she chooses to express this, it transcends words. It goes beyond saying, yeah, in theory, you're the anointed one. It's like a prophetic enactment. It's like, well, if you're the anointed one, somebody better anoint you then. You can't be the anointed one until you've had oil poured on you, can you? And what better oil can there be? What more fitting oil? Then this jar, this alabaster jar with my 30,000 pound of pure nard, it's worth it. So she smashes open her perfume jar and she anoints 
the anointed one herself. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that an amazing thing? She also understood this. She understood that Jesus was going to die. She'd been listening when he'd been talking about it. Jesus highlights this. Jesus said, she's prepared me for my burial. One of the uses of of that nard that was quite common in the day was to prepare a a body that had died for the tomb. That's one of the things. And there's something in Mary choosing to use the nard. Like, she's heard him talking about his death. They've all heard him talking about it. Now, for most of the others, it had kind of brushed off them. They weren't really listening. They didn't get it. After Simon Peter had that you are the Christ moment, Jesus was like, brilliant, right? Let me explain what that means. We're going to go to Jerusalem now. We're going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And Simon Peter was like, no, no, it can't be like that. No, uh, no we're not having that. He'd argue against it. But Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing the words, they've sunk in. Yeah, he's going to die. That's what it means for him to be the anointed one. She's taken it in. She's got it. Kay Bonikowski says, not only does she believe that Jesus is the Christ, but she accepts his death is an integral part of his messianic destiny. Jesus can only gain his throne by his impending death. So she's understood. Jesus is the anointed one, and his mission is to die for the sins of the world. The other cool thing that I noticed about this, I was reading Psalm 23 yesterday, a famous psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in one. It was just a beautiful thing, I was reading it. And it speaks of uh, someone who has to walk through the darkest valley, someone who goes through this really horrendous, season and then the promise of God for that person who's going through the darkness in verse 5 is you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies you anoint my head with oil my cup overflows I think of Jesus going through the darkest valley Jesus going through that time when everyone was turning against him when everyone was calling for his death when his enemies were surrounding him And I think, how did God fulfill this promise for Jesus? You prepare a table for me at a house in Bethany as my enemies surround me. You anoint my head with oil and you do so by the hands of this incredible woman, Mary. That she gets to be the provision of God's promise for Jesus as he's walking through the darkest valley. And so surely your goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. See, what Mary's done is she's sat at his feet, she's learned, she's understood, and now she's given herself in worship. That's how it should be, right? We have this weird thing, I don't know if you've ever done this, where we divorce the head from the heart a little bit. We'll have some of us who will say things like, yeah, I don't want any of that theology stuff. I, I just want to love Jesus, me. It's crazy. Like, in what other relationship would you say to someone... I don't want to know anything about you. I don't want to learn about you. And I don't want to know what you've got to say. I just want to be around you and love you. It doesn't work, does it? Some others of us say, oh yeah, you're talking about intimacy with Jesus. That's airy-fairy nonsense. Give me some meaty truth and theology. But no, what are you going to do with your meaty truth and theology if it's not turning you to draw near to Jesus and lay at his feet and give your heart to him? Then you don't get it. You've missed the whole point. The two need to belong together. 
And Mary shows us that they do. It says she's coming to understand who she is at his feet and soaking up his word, that her worship and her love is fueled. And that's what informs her pouring herself out for him in this way. What Mary did was beautiful. But the reaction to it is a bit mixed, isn't it? There's pushback from the disciples. And John tells us that Judas was the one who was like the ringleader of this. And basically what they're saying is, yeah, we kind of get that this is a bit nice, but 30 grand, come on, we could, we could have done some good for the poor with that. I think they've missed the spiritual edge to what was going on. They've missed that Jesus has been prepared to die. They've missed that he is the anointed one being anointed. And so they question her motives. They start having a go at Mary. She's done an amazing thing, but they're like kind of needling away at her. They're trying to undermine and diminish this act of devotion that she's done. It comes across to me as an attempt to silence her, an attempt to belittle her. Maybe a power play by the disciples said, no, no, we can't have Mary as the one doing this. We need to just question this and make it look small. And it was utterly hypocritical. Judas, the leader of this kind of movement to, uh, to diminish what she's done, he was actually nicking money from the treasury himself. So no wonder he wanted the perfume sold and the money to go in there because he was on the fiddle. But there's something so utterly toxic. There's something we need to guard against in critiquing the devotion of somebody else. It's totally inappropriate to do. When someone's pouring their heart out to Jesus and you're looking on from the sidelines trying to work out, well, they could have done it a bit better. They could have done it this way. Like the football commentator who's never played and is watching all these incredible players and like nitpicking at their technique. But when we bring that to the worship of others. It's like, oh, that person raises their hands a lot. Now they're jumping. I bet they're just after attention, aren't they? And we can say things like that. Which do you think pleases Jesus more? The vibrant affection that someone's giving him or the critical heart that's analysing it from the sidelines? You know, we don't know the heart of one another, do we? But when we go into, like, critique mode, it says more about ourselves than it does about the person that we're looking at. Get on the field, get in the game, pour out your own heart to him. Now it might not look the same as the person over there, that's fine. It might not look the same as Mary, that's fine. But how are you pouring out your heart for him? And as you do, that critical spirit fades away. And so Jesus jumps in to defend her. He jumps in to speak up for her. In my translation, it says, she's performed a good service for me. But some of the other versions have it as, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Isn't that an incredible thing to hear from Jesus? He sees her devotion. He's like, yes, this is beautiful. This is incredible. The honour that Jesus gives her here is mind-blowing. I can't get my head around what Jesus says. It's one of the things that puzzle me every time I see it. He says this, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world... What she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Just, just stop and think about that, right? It's like, you're going to preach the gospel everywhere, and there's going to be a PS, Mary did something great, to the gospel, like, <coughs> that's such a thing for Jesus to say, as an honouring of this act of devotion. You see, what Mary had done here, it points to the gospel, it speaks of the gospel, it illustrates the gospel. She poured out something of incredible value. 
Well, what did Jesus do? He poured out something of even greater value. Not just a year's wages, not just an expensive perfume, but his blood. The blood of the perfect lamb of God. She broke this alabaster jar. Jesus' own body he allowed to be broken for you and for me. She carried shame for what she'd done. The comments of the group, those trying to diminish her and put her down. Jesus carried a greater shame. Not just the comments of those around, but the shame of the sins of the whole world. And then she ended up honoured. She ended up justified. Jesus said, yes, this is beautiful. And Jesus was justified by the Father as he was raised up from the dead. And that justification gets shared with all who trust in him. What she did would be remembered forever. What he's done for us will be remembered every time we gather, every time we speak of him, every time we break bread and take the juice. We do it in remembrance of him. Mary got it. She understood. She readied Jesus for his burial and she pointed to the good news of what he was going to do. And her response to him serves as a pattern for our response to him. Watchman Nee said, Jesus intends that the preaching of the gospel should issue in something along the very lines of the actions of Mary here. Namely, that people should come to him and waste themselves on him. I want us to respond. I wonder if the musicians will jump forward at this point. Um, I was thinking a bit this week, like, how can you respond to something like this? What's an appropriate thing to do? Having seen how Mary's given herself, thinking about how Jesus has given himself for us. And I ask this question, is singing an appropriate response? Is it, is it enough? And part of me was thinking, well, no, if we just say, oh, we're just going to go back into another song and we'll just kind of stand there and go through the lyrics to another song. Of course that isn't enough. And then I thought, but there's a way to sing that's more than that, isn't there? there are way, there's a way to sing that's bringing something more than just mouthing the words. There's a way to sing that's pouring yourself out, that's expressing your heart, that's giving the offering that you have to give to him. And I thought, yeah, that's appropriate. That's a good response. There's nothing better we can do than that.